0: The clouds roll back and the stars fill the night. That's where. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, I will continue my look at Black Reconstruction in America, uh, which I think last time I said it'll take six episodes, but I'm pretty sure now it's going to take seven because I actually went and got the physical book, which I had in my storage and and just breaking it up. It's going to be seven episodes altogether, but this is number three of seven then. We'll look at chapters uh, seven and eight, um, looking forward and the transubstantiation of a poor white. Uh, Now, this chapter six, seven, or sorry, seven, eight, and nine, I think in a way are really just getting us to where Du Bois wants us to be for the discussion of actually Black Reconstruction, because a reader who just looks at these chapters would say, yeah, I like the take. I mean, this is a, a, a vindication of, of much of, you know, Reconstruction history, um, but it's still white Reconstruction. It's still looking at what was done in Congress and in the presidency and at that level, like the Congressional Radical Reconstruction period, the Presidential Reconstruction. I guess we begin with that. Uh, but we, we covered that in the last episode where we looked at looking backward, looking forward, then really covers the period of radical reconstruction from the congressional level. But I think what Du Bois really wants to do in this book, it's revealed like in chapter 10, to the end, is talk about what black people actually did. Um, and that he begins his look at by looking at, uh, at South Carolina. So that is uh, That's sort of where the book is going Um, anyways. So these chapters, uh, they're a little more standard in their approach. I mean, if you know the history of Reconstruction, you kind of know what's going to be discussed in these. Um, He does have his unique, distinct perspective on it, though, especially where he's talking about labor and labor politics and capital, um, which really shows his Marxist influence and the influence of, like, the Great Depression. Because I think, in part, what Du Bois wants to do is not just say, like, uh, America could have come out of the Civil War era with a better deal for black Americans. Uh, you know, land reform or, or more defense of civil rights, all that. We all know that. Obviously, this is a hinge point in American history. But I think where Du Bois really is, is innovative here is saying it wouldn't have just been better for black Americans. It would have been better for everyone if we could have actually got a handle on capital and capitalism. Um, which we had an opportunity to do here with an interracial democracy, but we failed to, to do that. So, anyways, I, I think that's the subtext here. But, but again, this these sections might not be as like impactful as I think some of the later parts of the book, where it actually gets into this question of like, what did black people actually do when they took political power or, or gained their their rightful political power in um, you know in the period after after eighteen sixty eight. But anyways, let's jump in. Looking back, forward, looking forward. So chapter six was looking backward, and that's talking about reaction. And then looking forward is talking is looking forward. Uh, and then we're going to see chapter um, eight, which is about uh, about Johnson. Is kind of another looking backward, kind of flipping back and forth. Um, and I think this part of the book does have this feeling of a debate, of a discussion across the nation between these two forces. And this is how he begins. Every chapter here has a. Not a really an epigraph, but like a summary, um, which you can kind of just read the summaries and get the gist of the book. Uh, he, says, he says he writes how two theories of the future of America clashed and blended just after the Civil War. The one was abolition democracy based on freedom, intelligence, and power for all men, and the other was industry for private property, or uh, private profit, directed at an autocracy determined at any price to amass wealth and power. The uncompromising resistance of the South and the pressure of black folks made these two thoughts uneasy and temporary allies. So to break this down in a way, um, abolition democracy, that's that's the Sumner-Stevens uh, perspective. It's like civil rights, land reform, uh, right? Maybe not land reform so much, but but certainly civil rights for black people. Then you have capital, and the, the capital itself is divided between Northern capital and Southern capital, but Southern capital is kind of abolished because Southern capital was in land in slaves, and they kept the land, but they lost the slaves, so South, the South lost most of its capital. So they're, they're more a reactionary vision of like, how can we reclaim a control over the labor force that can make this land that we own profitable? But Northern capital, here, which nationally is going to dominate in the Reconstruction era. If you read Richard Wright's uh, the the country or the nation for which it's it, what, whatever it's called, his the Oxford History uh, collection of American history for the Republic uh, for which it stands, or the Republic for which it stands. I think that's what it's called. Um, anyways, that I should have known that it's like it's from the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, But it's uh, he's got a chapter there called like the Greater Reconstruction, which is kind of a step building off of this argument and argument of other new age, new wave reconstruction historians to say it wasn't just about the South. It was about the whole nation. The future of the whole nation was in question. Um, And democracies, you know, has to attention with capital, which is naturally undemocratic. And certainly Du Bois thinks that and. And I think that, and and, and of course the left in general sees the undemocratic aspect of that. But at the same time, in its opposition to white supremacy in the South, there was a space for an alliance between those uh, two. Um, And even a space for someone like Johnson is possibly in here too. And and a lot of these two chapters is is the tragedy of of Andrew Johnson, who as a poor white could find a, a virtue in, in abolition democracy. Um, But it eventually came to blows against his hostility towards um, capital itself and especially northern capital and his his racial antagonism towards blacks. So there's always limits on how far he was willing to go with black civil rights and there's a limit to how much he could stomach, you know, the repression of southern the south which he still was sort of affiliated with. He was, of course, a Southerner and one time a slaveholder, but from the poor white class. Where that's where I guess his emotional sympathies were at. Um, the first sentence, though, of this ch- chapter proper is a bit weird. A printer and a carpenter, a rail splitter and a tailor. Garrison, Christ, Lincoln and Johnson were the tools of the greatest moral awakening America ever knew. Chosen to challenge capital, invested in the bodies of men and annul. The private property of slavery. This done, two quite distinct but persistent undifferentiated visions of the future dominated the triumphant north after the war. One was the promulgation of Puritan idealism transformed by the frontier into a theory of universal democracy and now expressed by abolitionists like Wendell Phillips, students of civilization like Charles Sumner, and leaders of the common people like Thaddeus Stevens, together with some of the leaders of the New Labor Movement. The other trend was entirely different and is confused with the democratic ideal because the two ideals lay confused in so many individual minds. This is the development of industry in America and the new industrial philosophy, quote. So that first, like throwing in quite Christ into the first sentence here is a bit weird. But otherwise, this is a really um, kind of powerful summation of what he's trying to say. Um, now, ultimately, as his little introduction suggests, these are going to have an uneasy alliance of sorts in the radical republicans. But who's going to challenge that ultimately? It seems who's going to challenge that is going to be blacks in the democracy. Once you have black people in the democratic view, they're going to challenge capital, not just the capital that once owned them or, or the, themselves as capital, right? Not challenging that slavery itself, but challenging uh, another vision of private property, of, of capital over labor. And so Du Bois is really even hinting at, looking at the roots of, like, interracial democracy and things here in this book. It is a a theme. So it's worth kind of dwelling on these first pages to see what exactly he's trying to do. Um, For instance, he writes, Capital accepted widespread suffrage as a fact forced on the world by revolution and the growing intelligence of the working class. But since the new industry called for intelligence in its workers, capitalists not only accepted universal suffrage, but early discovered that high wages in America made even higher profits possible, and that this high standard of living was itself a protection for capital, in that it made the more intelligent and best paid workers allies of capital and left its ultimate dictatorship undisturbed. Nevertheless, industry took pains to protect itself wherever possible. It included illiterate foreign voters from the ballot and abdicated a res- reservoir of non-voting common laborers and stood right at any time by difficult bribery or the use of its power to hire or discharge labor to manipulate the labor vote. Unquote. And what you get this here is a sense that abolition is not going to be the fight. That, that fight's over. Abolitionist has been won. Where the fight's going to be is really over the vote and the franchise and who's going to get it. Um, and the two groups that need it the most are like those poor Southern whites and former slaves. And they're going to, you know, equipped with the vote are going to be able to challenge this, you know, this, as Du Bois says here, undemocratic power of capital. And of course, this shouldn't surprise us. The first chapter of this book so the first chapters are literally called The Black Worker and The White Worker. So he has in his mind a, a very Marxian, proletariat versus bourgeoisie kind of view of, of American history. It's just slavery is the way black labor was organized at the time, but uh, the ultimate analysis of exploitation and democracy as a solution to that exploitation is, is, is relatively undisturbed by that unique factor of, of America's peculiar institution. So he jumps in then to the discussion of black suffrage, and that's going to dominate a lot of the this chapter, the next chapter, and even chapter of chapter nine, which really gets us to the fifteenth amendment. So this is the narrative of the fourteenth and fifteenth amendment, and by and large. How we got those constitutional amendments and how Johnson resisted uh, the 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 more radical Republicans who wanted to to enforce civil rights. But, um, civil rights, voting rights in itself is only the prelude to the real story, which is what did black people do with the vote, um, which is really what he, where he wants to say. Because many, uh, of course, the heart of the Dunning School is voting rights, rights, power were taken from the people who deserved it, in their view. Elite Southerners, planter class, the wealthy, the property class of the South, and given to people who were undeserving of it namely poor whites and particularly black voters, and then that's proven by the fact that they mismanaged their, their, the democracy that they got. Uh, that's the Dunning School, and that's really where his focus is on. Um, but I think uh, a reader reading this now is really going to be really fascinated by how, how he gets to, like, Marxist conclusions from this, and at some points even like global capitalist, interpretations about global capitalism through this discussion of American history. Really powerfully done, actually. Um, so, uh, like the other chapters in this book, though, um, you know, a lot of this is long quotes of speeches and documents, primary sources. And, and again, I think the reason for this is, I don't think it's just padding, because um, any of this could have been summarized. You could have just said, uh, Stadius Stevens, Like, for instance, take this paragraph. The second seer of democracy, the first being Sumner, the second is Stevens. The uh, second uh, seer of democracy was Thaddeus Stevens. He was a man different entirely in method, education, and thought from Charles Sumner. We know Stevens best when he was old and sick, and with grim and awful courage, he made the American Congress take the last steps which it has ever taken towards democracy. Yet, in one respect, S- Stevens, in his thought, was even more realistic than Charles Sumner, although Stevens later followed him. And at first, Stevens knew that beneath all theoretical freedom, a political right must lie an economic foundation. He sat at Lancaster, Pennsylvania, September 7th, 1865, colon, and this was followed by like three pages of, of quotes from the speech. This is an example. Like, could set up, and he did the same thing with Sumner, set it up and then just quote the speech. Um, And as I said in the last episode, I think the reason he's doing this is because a lot of his readers, black readers, you know, because of Jim Crow laws, just wouldn't have been allowed at the library to follow up on these quotes. Du Bois himself wasn't having access to primary sources. He relied on secondary sources for the vast majority of this or published primary sources, which you can get good history of that. I've always believed in that. I always thought, uh, you know, an an emphasis on archival history uh, is is a little bit restrictive to historians or students from more working-class backgrounds. Like, if you can travel, if you can have the clout to get grants, yes, archival research is what you should be doing. You can go to other countries. You can go around the world. You can go to London. You can go to Berlin. Look at the primary sources. Find stuff that's never been found before if you're, uh, you know, someone who doesn't have the means, uh, isn't uh, from a university that's well-funded and well-moneyed, you know, you have to write your dissertation or do your research more creatively. And that, of course, probably should include some primary archival material to some degree. But it might mean looking at microfilm. It might mean, looking at dusty old published books that haven't been looked at in a while, or reprocessing stuff that has been interpreted. It's, um, I think it's worthy to be done, and actually I actually think it makes for more interesting history writing because it's, it is more reflective and synthetic. I think that's funner to, to kind of read and get your head around. When I, I don't do a lot of like the same kind of academic reading I used to do. I still read a lot of history, but it's usually more broad. It's uh, more synthetic kind of historical accounts. Because you just kind of get more bang for your buck that way. Also, I'm kind of teaching at high school now. Anyways, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I I think this is a good example of what you can do with uh, the sources available. But he's conscious of his readers not having access to the sources. Um, And so he quotes them. So this book does become almost a documentary history. which I wouldn't say a lost art. Library of America published a lot of documentary histories. But, um, you know, something I think we should praise a little bit more is like annotated primary source collections um, as, you know, just where, you, where someone collects all the sources for you and you, you have access to them all in one book, all in one volume. Very, very useful, especially in this time period when, you know, it was you didn't have digitized text. And if you couldn't get to a library, if you're in a rural area or if you're in a Jim Crow area and you couldn't get access to it, having it all in the book allows you to judge and evaluate the argument uh, without doing your own digging. It's not done as much. In fact, you're told not to do this And when you go to graduate school. You're told, don't quote for three pages a, a, a speech by Stevens. Summarize it in your own words and quote sparingly. Okay, fine, but you know. Du Bois went to Harvard, got his PhD from Harvard. Um, So he's breaking that rule here, but I think he's doing it for a good reason. Speaking of which, let's uh, talk about the bibliography, Uh, since I'm talking about sources and how we wrote this first. One of the most fascinating bibliographies you could ever read, something I wasn't thinking about because I didn't have the physical book in front of me, but now that I do I was able to flip back to the bibliography. And of course, the immediate, immediately you'll notice how thin it is. And of course, he relied on secondary sources. He read both Dunning School stuff, he read historians who were hostile to blacks, and he read other works too. And I've never seen a bibliography divided this way by like, well, I'll just describe it, and you'll you'll know what I'm talking about first section one of the bibliography is called Standard Anti-Negro. And then he p- explains, in parentheses, these authors believe the Negro to be subhuman and congenitally unfitted for citizenship and suffrage. So this is Dunning School stuff. Clara Thompson, Edwin Woolley, William Dunning, of course, Hamilton, Eckenrode, most of these people we don't read anymore, but these are Burgess, John Burgess, so definitely Dunning School. Next, uh, you'd think this is the same category, but he differentiates them. He calls them propaganda. So these are, these kind of progress towards the, what he's seen as more, you know, historians that are more, uh, you know, honest with the blacks' experience in Reconstruction. But section two is called propaganda. Quote These authors select and use facts and opinions in order to prove that the South was right in Reconstruction, the North vengeful or deceitful, and the Negro stupid. Not really better than standard anti-Negro, but um, it seems, he says here, they use facts and opinions. Maybe that's the step forward um, here. But here we have uh, Hillary Herbert, the abolition crusade and its consequences, Richard Morton, the Negro in Virginia politics, James Pike, the Prostate South. That's a famous one, of course. Um, All right. Then we got, he just actually called historians. So he doesn't include the previous two groups as historians. (laughs) He, he says, historians, fair to indifferent on the Negro. And here you have uh, George Clemenceau, The History of American Reconstruction. Uh, John Commons, he's famous. Edward McPherson, The Political History of the United States and Reconstruction. Again, works most of us don't read. Um, but Herman Schulzer, Lincoln, Labor and Slavery. Maybe it's worth checking out some of these histories. Then we have another category just called historians. These historians have studied the history of Negroes and write sympathetically about them. So this is the early revisionists. These were the people contemporary of Du Bois, but white historians uh, writing from uh, a more sympathetic point of view, Bancroft, Beard, uh, Whitelaw Reed, Edwin Tinker, Henry Wilson, uh, and these. Then we get a section that kind of summarizes the broad histo- historians we get. Then we have a section called Monographs and he explains these authors seek the facts in certain narrow definite fields and in most cases do not ignore the truth as to the Negro. So he's kind of saying the focused academic studies of like the Negro in Ohio or the influence of reconstruction on education in the South are because they're so focused they're not writing for a broad audience are able to be a little more sympathetic to blacks because they're just kind of laying out the facts in a very, very narrow field. Then we have answers. Now we get to uh, uh, different categories here. Answers, these are answers to, of certain carpetbaggers and scalawags to their tritesters. Um So these are actually people who were involved in reconstruction. So this is kind of primary sources, published primary sources. Then we have a section called Lives, which is biographies um, that he relied on. Then Negro historians. These are standard works of Negro historians, some judicial, some eager, and even bitter in defense. So these are uh, the the new generation of black historians who are working. He includes himself here, his article on the Freedmen's Bureau, um, Martin Delaney. I don't know most of these. John Wallace, Carpetbag Rule in Florida. Charles Wellesley, Negro Labor in America in the United States. George Washington Williams, History of the Negro Race in America from 1618 to 1880. So this is new generation of the first generation really, of Black history by black writers. Then we have unpublished theses. Only he only includes those by young Negro scholars here. He has six examples of that. Then government reports and other reports so he does get primary sources here so to say this is based simply on secondary sources is a little not entirely accurate he does have primary sources here um and to say he just reads like the dunning school um like i've heard some people say that he basically relies on the dunning school historians i think is also not really true because he's drawing from many things but um what he does with this small five-page bibliography i think is pretty Amazing. Um, And he lays it all out for you, for you to judge. And I I like that approach. Okay, anyways, he goes through, back to the book itself, he goes through the text, uh, the arguments of different people for black suffrage and for democracy, essentially, in America. And he's always got this in mind of this contradiction in democracy in that you end up empowering people who are... um, poor and therefore going to be antagonistic towards the ruling class, quote, democracy, that inevitable end of all governments, faces internal paradox. In all ages, the vast majority of men have been ignorant and poor, and any attempt to arm such classes with political power brings up the question, can ignorance and poverty rule? If they try to rule their successes in the nature of things, must be halting and spasmodic, if not absolutely nil. And it must incur the criticism and raillery of the wise and the well-to-do. On the other hand, if the poor, unlettered toilers are given no political power, they are kept by exploitation and poverty and will remain submerged unless rescued by revolution. End quote. So the argument being, you know, you're know, you kind of doomed either way, I suppose. You might have to accept for a short period of time the rule of the ignorant to avoid the domination of the ruling classes or revolution. You just get revolution, which might be worse in a way, um, and and I think almost in a way, we I get the sense Du Bois is moving away from like the talented tenth stuff. Um, I know that's kind of sometimes unfairly overly associated with Du Bois because I think Du Bois, I I couldn't find him talk about the talented tenth very often, um, and I've read a lot of his stuff, and he doesn't seem to say that much about the talented tenth. I think the talented tenth as uh, a group uh, attached itself to Du Bois as one of their own. Um, but I think Du Bois isn't as insistent on this. I think he does believe broadly, and he, and he always did believe broadly in black civil rights and equality and voting rights and all that stuff. Um, and that puts him actually in a better position to oppose people like Booker T. Washington for their equivocation on some of these issues. But what's really clear in this book is that he's saying no. like Warts and all, you have to embrace them. I, even in like, some of the stuff he wrote during the Harlem Renaissance, And certainly Elaine Locke, too, that we we kind of have to present, you know, if blacks are going to rise in cultural prominence, it should be like a virtuous voice, not one that's self-critical too much or one that's too true in a way. Like, I think there was a fear of of being too honest in a way. Uh, And if you show kind of ignorance... That's going to cloud the political goals of the time, right? But it really seems to me that he's moved beyond that. And maybe this is the influence of this Marxian philosophy on him. Um, But anyways, um, what else do we have here? Um, yeah, he talks a lot about voting, the right, or the push for voting rights, but also he intertwines this discussion with the discussion of the rise of capital, new cheap immigrant labor coming in, uh, also being a question of like what's their place in in, a, in the expanded democracy. Um, and then here's where he fits in his conversation about the Freedmen's Bureau, which we we know from the Souls of Black Folk was on Du Bois' mind quite a lot. He, he made one of early defenses of the Freedmen's Bureau in The Souls of Black Folk. If you remember that book, I talk, covered it on this podcast quite a while ago, but in that uh, section of The Souls of Black Folk, he does say, like, this was good labors. These, this was good work that was being done, and it was targeting the uplift of, of black people. Here he calls it the 12 labors of Hercules faced by the Freedmen's Bureau, um, which is immediate, like eliminate hunger, uh, transition black people to to wage labor, establish hospitals, uh, basic education, open schools, uh, make sure black families got their pay, their back pay and everything like that. So there's a list of these things and, and he thinks this is pretty much all good. Whatever corruption there was, whatever issues there were in it should not be the focus of our attention. We should focus on the good they were doing and the prosperity they potentially could have brought. To it, because he he's always got like uplift in the back of his mind, right? Um, and and he's like he he thinks this problem he states about democracy being expanded to everyone is a short term problem. It, it can be addressed, it can be overcome, because the alternative, keeping those people outside of the franchise, outside of political power, and ignorant and exploited, is just going to lead to revolutionary violence. It's like we certainly don't want that. Um, So that's more or less the chapter of looking forward. It's uh, the the America came to a consensus on essentially like, yeah, we probably should extend some basic civil rights to all in the South. Um, Here's how he sums up. Um, And so at first, Abraham Lincoln looked back towards some stable place in the relations of blacks and whites in the South, on which men could build a new office or a new edifice for freedom. And he gave only one word that had in it any ring of harshness. He was willing to accept almost any overture on the part of the South, except that he would not return the Negroes to slavery. And if any law compelled the executive to do this, that executive would not be Abraham Lincoln. There can be no doubt that Abraham Lincoln never would have accepted the black codes. He began by looking backwards and then turned to this forward-looking word. So this is putting those two chapters, chapter six and seven together, looking backwards to looking forward. And he's defending Lincoln here from criticisms that he was too soft. And and I kind of agree with this. I I used to kind of agree with the idea of Lincoln as maybe being too um, weak on his reconstruction policy. But I think now, like his priority was always ending the war and ensuring um, the emancipation. That doesn't mean that something like the 10% plan or the softer policies he proffered up while he was still alive would have been actually the Reconstruction policies as implemented, no more than his early statements in the Greeley letter where he said, I would end the war without affecting slavery. That was a lie, right? And I want to believe, maybe that's wishful thinking on my point, but I think it's probably accurate that Lincoln wouldn't have held himself to statements he made while the war was still going on about, what Reconstruction would look like. But Du Bois then says here, okay, that's Lincoln. But Lincoln's dead. On the other hand, Andrew Johnson started looking forward towards free land and in the interests of the suppressed laborers in the South and then realized that one half of this laboring class was black, so he turned his face towards reaction. He accepted the Black Codes and thus he faced the winter of 1865, the representatives of the people in the United States of the 39th Congress assembled, And this gets us to chapter 8, The longest chapter in the book, I want to say, it's almost 100 pages on its own. Um, I'm really breaking the 100 pages at a time rule here. Um, It's a little bit less. It's like 90 pages. I think it's the longest chapter in the book. It's called The Transubstantiation of a Poor White. And here he just unpacks that sentence or those few sentences he just ends chapter 7 on by looking at how Andrew Johnson becomes president pushes for democracy in the South because he wants to help the poor whites, um, and then ends up being divided in his allegiances and f- is forced to ally with the Southern oligarchy and against votes for blacks because of his fear b- of the blacks themselves and of Northern monopoly. So this seed that was set in looking back forward, this in that chapter that There was some ominous cloud over abolition democracy, and that was northern capitalism. And that is going to taint Johnson. So Johnson ends up being a more tragic figure than maybe you normally think about him because he was, in a sense, so fearful of capitalism that he could only kind of look backward ultimately. We, we, we've been set up, this idea's been set up of looking forward or looking backward. And Du Bois here is actually being a good Marxist saying, looking forward does mean capitalism. Just like Marx says, you know, you have to kind of get through capitalism. Feudalism, capitalism to socialism. You can't jump stages that easily. And the South had to go through capitalism before it could get, it couldn't jump from feudalism to some kind of socialism. Um, and so looking forward does mean embracing northern capital to a certain degree. So anyways, I'm debating how much of this, to t- how much of this chapter to, to get into. Because a lot of it is politics. A lot of it is actually policy issues. Um, but ultimately, we're told in the early chapters, because he sets up his chapters always the same. He's, he kind of sets up his argument in the first few pages. He summarizes it very poetically at the end, usually with a literal poem. Cap off the chapter. And then the middle is just a lot of documentary, like a documentary history. Um, so he sets up here. The dictatorship of capital was arising. It's like the, the, the star, star Wars crawl here. The new tremendous dictatorship of capital was arising. There was one way to curb and direct what promised to become the greatest plutar- plutocratic government world has ever known. That's what we get here. To accomplish this end, there should have been in the country and represented in Congress a union between the champions of universal suffrage and the rights of the freedmen together with the leaders of labor and the South, small landowners of the West, and logically the poor whites of the South. Against these would have arrayed the Northern Industrial Oligarchy and eventually, when they were remitted to Congress, the representatives of the former Southern Oligarchy. That's the Possibility. Of course, we don't get that. Why don't we get that? Why do we get a failure of democracy? Well, because the union of democratic forces never took place. The, 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 the screen crawl is still going on. The old anti Negro labor rivalry between whites and black workers kept the labor elements after the war from ever uniting into a domain that increased labor power by Negro suffrage, etc. Now, at the center of this, as the chapter title tells us, is Andrew Johnson, the poor white who is transubstantiated from being an advocate of the poor to being a, a, a guardian of the oligarchy, the old Southern oligarchy, with their interests in land and in domination of, of the working class of the South. And it's racism and it's fear of Puritan ideal, uh, you know, Puritanism, New England Puritanism, that's how Du Bois frames it, that puts him in that position. So he ends up being sort of a tragic figure. Not a wholly sympathetic, I mean, he, you know, he wasn't, he's not some kind of Shakespearean tragic figure. You know, at times he's kind of presented that way, but maybe that's for dramatic effect for Du Bois. Um, but, you know, I think we should, shouldn't go that far in painting him as kind of a victim here. He, he obviously is a villain in this story because he stood against basic black civil rights. But nevertheless, I think it's something Du Bois is interested in. Um, for instance, here then was Andrew Johnson in 1865, born in the bottom of society, and during his early life a radical defender of the poor, the landless and the exploited. In the heyday of his early political career, he railed against land monopoly of the South and after the Civil War wanted the land of the monopolist d- divided among peasant proprietors. Not, not blacks, peasant proprietors. Suddenly, by a weird magic of history, he becomes military dictator of a nation. He becomes a man by whom the greatest moral and economic revolution that ever took place in the United States and perhaps in modern times was to be put into effect. He becomes the real emancipator of four million black slaves who have suffered more than anything to have experienced in their early days. They had no land. They had not even owned their own bodies, nor their clothes, nor their tools. They had been exploited down to the ownership of their own families. They had been poor by law and ignorant by force what more splendid opportunity could the champion of labor and exploited have to start a nation towards freedom? Like what, so there is a tragedy here in a way, at least the way Du Bois wants to present it. And maybe, again, that's for the drama of, of the text, because it is a good story in a way. I just, I don't know. I'm, I am still kind of don't want to be that nice to, to Johnson to make him even a tragic figure. It's much easier to just see him as a force as, as kind of the bad guy of Reconstruction, right? Um, which, of course, is how the radical Republicans end up seeing him. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's something to Du Bois's elevation of Johnson to, to tragedy. Because ultimately, he does end up on the wrong side of history. He turns his back on Stevens and Sumner and the voices of, of democracy. Now, who's not in this conversation? It's the blacks aren't yet in the conversation, right? Because it's not until they get suffrage. It's not until they get the political rights, which is going to be in the 14th Amendment, partially, but really the 15th Amendment, as we'll see in the next chapter. In the next episode, we'll talk about this a little bit. Um, but that opens up the possibilities of, of what, what are blacks going to do with this political power? And what they're gonna do is pretty awesome and amazing as most students of Reconstruction now admit. But uh, Du Bois was part of that first generation to set that up, uh, to set up that argument. So, uh, and again, very long chapter. Um, hard, to, hard to kind of summarize and talk about. But I think one interesting thing here he does get to is why, uh, why southerners maybe feared black power more than northerners did. I think Du Bois seems to be saying that the abolitionist democracy people who want black voting rights aren't, you know, tend to see it as a positive, while Southern oligarchs saw it as dangerous. And who's right here? And I think Du Bois is, is kind of hinting that the Southerners were right to see it as dangerous because they could transform America. And in fact, they, they did. And who knew that better than the southern? white, the ruling class of the, of the South, who owned black people, who knew them quite well, actually, and knew their capacities, knew their grievances, and knew their, just knew their potential. So the effort to stamp out black civil rights in the years after the Civil War was pushed by the people who knew in a very contradictory way. They are obviously racist but that racism is informed by the fact that they realize that this group had power, right? So their, their very fear undermines their own racist arguments because if, if they just believe black people to be servile, ignorant, easily co-opted, then what was there to fear of, the, of black votes, right? Uh, unless you said, uh, like, I guess they would say publicly, like, oh, carpetbaggers will get them to vote in the wrong direction, right? That's kind of what they said. But I think Du Bois is hinting that there was a greater fear here of their potentialities to be a real force in 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 political life in the South, and that's what they were afraid of more than more than the carpetbaggers themselves manipulating black voters. So that's uh, and that might be where where Johnson falls in as well, and that's kind of how the chapter ends too. He he says the transubstantiation of Andrew Johnson was complete. He had begun as a champion of the poor labor, demanding that the land monopoly of the southern oligarchy be broken up so as to give access to the soil, south and west of the free labor. He had demanded the punishment of those southerners who by slavery and war had made such an economic program impossible. Suddenly he thrust into the extravagant idea of punishment, but he dropped his demand for dividing up plantations when he realized that the Negroes would largely be beneficiaries. Because he could not conceive of Negroes as men, he refused to ex- advocate universal democracy, on which in his young manhood, he had been the fiercest advocate and made a strong alliance with those who would restore slavery under another name. This, how we come to terms with Southern racism, I think, is at the heart of this. He's saying here, Andrew Johnson could not conceive of them as men. And certainly many Southerners fell into that. Him being a poor white, maybe he's more keen to that. I'm more interested in this idea of the oligarchs seeing, being able to kind of see through their own racial their racially tinted glasses and say, "Okay, n- people who aren't men, as we understand men, voting is kind of scary. But people we hate, who are our political enemies, voting, who are men, is super scary, right? Because they, that's the fear is more in what in them being having power than them having the vote itself, right? So, anyways, I, I think there's a, a, a kind of a conversation." being had here, uh, maybe in Du Bois, or maybe more importantly, between the oligarchs and people like Johnson, who are you know, poor whites and more just straight up racist, um, than the planters who, who saw black people as a resource and therefore a potential threat to them, not just as a, as a danger to them, right? Because that's, that's the heart of the division, right? Because planters always relied on black people for their wealth and power and that's why they said we can't have them read if they start reading they're going to be dangerous to us we can't have them vote because they'll be dangerous to us and then you had the poor whites who saw black people as a as a threat to their own livelihood right they hated the planter class in part because not because they loved black people but because they you know they saw the economic domination of the planter class as undermining them but you know it's kind of like the free soil ideology right we want the west for whites not for free blacks right we're against slavery because we don't want blacks in the west we'd rather have that land for for us um anyways that's there now also in this chapter is the whole conversation of the 14th amendment um and and johnson's opposition to it and the eventual passage of it and of course just to review its significance in this story is the 14th amendment grants equality of civil rights um, that's part. Second, it doesn't grant the right to vote. It just says if if people can vote, if a group population of men, of course, franchise was so restricted to men, can't vote, that will. Re- so the three-fifths compromise is taken away. First of all, but then it says we will take away full representation, not just two-fifths of representation. We'll take away full representation for each voter that doesn't have the right to vote. So if you don't give the right to vote to black people and you're South Carolina, which is a black majority, you're going to lose half your seats in Congress. That's the heart of it. And then there's, of course, the, the insurrection clause. You can't hold office if you were involved in insurrection and, and those kinds of things. It's, it's a long amendment. But the heart of it is, you know, the, the, the first step towards black voting rights, saying we're going to take away your representation if you don't have that, but also equality before the law which is going to be really important in the civil rights laws of the 1960s. It's going to be the constitutional basis of it. So I think I'm going to stop with that. I know I kind of skipped over a lot of the details in this very, very long chapter on Andrew Johnson, but I think I got the heart of it um, summarized for you. In the next episode, I will do again do two chapters, Chapter 9 and Chapter 10, which uh, Chapter 9 will really be about the vote again, about the 15th Amendment leading up to it, Uh, and it's still kind of dealing with white politics of it all. Um, But then we get to South Carolina, the black proletariat in South Carolina, which is our first of a number of chapters that are going to look regionally or state by state at the South and see what did black people actually do with the 15th Amendment. And what they did is, as I said before, pretty amazing and the heart of Du Bois' argument against the propaganda of history that that you see in Reconstruction uh, writing at the time. So anyways, that's going to be it for now. Um, I had a lot of fun today uh, talking about this. Uh, But anyways, thanks for listening. Let me know what you think. Uh, You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or or leave a review. Uh, And I will talk to you next time with... uh, chapters 9 and 10 as we get to, uh, through the halfway point of the book uh, in the next episode and we'll begin rushing to the conclusion. Four more episodes, um, but they should be full, rich episodes because uh, this is a full, rich, uh, important book. And I'll so uh, anyways, that's it for now. I until I die. So I'm gonna stand up Take my people